One of the things I've learned about after many years of reporting on the energy transition is that energy is a technology, I'm talking wind, solar, batteries, for example, and energy is a commodity, coal, oil, and gas. Those two things are fundamentally different. And one of the people who's helped me understand that is Mike Andrade. He's the CEO of Morgan, uh, Toronto-based Morgan Solar. He's a, an engineer with over 30 years experience in electronics. So I'm going to talk to him about this fundamental question that we still need to understand better. So welcome to the interview, Mike. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Well, let's start with the big question. What's the difference between energy as a technology and energy as a commodity? I think the the fin fundamental difference, and it's not just about energy, as soon as you get um, electronics infiltrating something like we are now with batteries and, and solar in particular, the characteristics of competition and innovation change to look more like the underlying technologies of the electronics that are in it. So I, I guess I view the question a bit different as whether it's a technology or not. It is now being driven like it is a technology because the cost curves and performance curves are based on electronics rather than extraction and you know ore reduction and things like that that, that the past system was about. It's a, it's a disruption of the underlying competition based on the technology of electronics. And I guess the uh, one of the fundamental differences is we're talking about uh, energy as a technology is primarily electricity, whereas uh, you know coal and and gas can be burnt to generate electricity, but petroleum not so much. It basically they all get combusted uh, to do whatever work the energy is intended to do. Mm -hmm. um, so let's talk about uh, some of those uh, technologies and. Rights law or learning curves. This is uh, is something that uh, is a fundamental difference between the, the the two approaches. What what is rights law? Yeah, I mean, rights law fundamentally is basically kind of economies of scale that you get more uh, cost down based on increasing volumes. Uh, and in solar, it's you know they call it Swanson's law. People are familiar with Moore's law and the things like that. I think that the fundamental difference between a technology-driven, um, you know, disruption like we're seeing is there's a numerator and a denominator in the dollars per something. So if we're saying a dollars per kilowatt or whatever, and so the dollars part, the numerator is worked on by Wright's law, Swanson's law, you know, whatever about, hey, we build more of these things, we get better at and cheaper at building them. The important thing is that then when you combine the bottom where you have some semiconductor-like physics or what have you, most famously with Moore's law, but, but it happens here too, where batteries get better and solar panels get better. So that that dollars is the is the Moore's law, the rights law, that's right. The bottom is more like the Moore's law of, hey, and for that dollar, I get more. And so to me, the bigger difference is uh, oil sands can do better on the top line, get more efficient as an example. But nothing except for electronics works on that numerator through economies of scale and the denominator through physics in a way that's very, very powerful, frankly, unbeatable. Yeah, I, I maybe should get a little background on, on Wright's Law. I think it was Jim Wright, who was an engineer with... Uh... Uh, Lockheed uh, Connell Douglas in the U.S. I think that's who it was. Anyway, he he in 1936 he figured out that every time you they doubled the production of airplanes, uh, labor costs fell by 15. percent 
And so he worked this into a into a law uh, and other scholars have then gone on and further developed it. And I think the principle holds now that generally in any industry, uh, if when you double production of something, solar panels, wind turbines, batteries, that between, you'll get a, a, a reduction in costs of 15 to 25 percent overall. And that's one of the reasons why we've seen, you know, solar and wind. They've had this over the last 13, 14 years. We've had this cost curve where it started out here and then just went. Yeah. And and now it's and now we were talking about thousand dollars, say, a megawatt hour. Now we're talking about twenty five dollars a megawatt hour in the case of of solar. And what that means is as we produce, like as, as solar gets deployed more around the world, those costs will continue to drop. That's not the case with oil and gas, for instance. Yeah, and Markham, I think that I think people tend to understand the economies of scale, and that's why I think I focus on recognizing that top and bottom of it. Because whenever someone refers to whatever a thousand dollars for something or hundred dollars for something, and they just attribute that to, hey, it's coming down in cost. Um, they do think maybe there's a limit on that. The point is that when you can also say, and for that dollar, I get more. That's the exponential effect that we're seeing with solar. That's why the costs have really dropped. It's not just the panel cost manufacturing has dropped. It's that, that what you get for your manufacturing has gone up a lot as well. And that's particularly happening now with EVs and batteries too. That is, you're, you're right, that is the, the fundamental difference is this ability to have exponential performance improvement from both cost reduction and performance improvement. You just don't get from combustible fossil fuels with mechanical rotating things and all that. Steel is steel and fabrication is fabrication. You don't get those sort of effects uh, with the uh, current economic system and energy system. So let's let's use an example to explore the point that you just made, Mike. Uh, let's take uh, uh, electric vehicles and, and batteries. Now we, you know, batteries have followed essentially the same cost curve that that wind and solar followed, and now are I think the average in the last couple of years has been about one hundred and thirty-seven dollars a kilowatt hour for a battery pack in an EV. And but I've I've talked to battery scientists who who say that. You know, that's going down to like $40 a decade from now because of those cost curves are going to continue. Yeah. But at the same time, uh, the energy density of those batteries is rising an average of 7% a year. So that's I think that's what you're talking about is, yeah, the costs are coming down as we ramp up production, but yeah. the batteries themselves are getting better. They're getting yeah. safer. Uh, they, you know, range in the electric vehicles is, is increasing that. Have, have I got that correct? You, you do. And and I just uh, I think people oftentimes talks about cost curves and they mix that numerator and denominator. I'm sure when people are saying they're coming down 40 percent, they're taking tap in count. Hey, gigafactories are getting better and energy density is better. That numerator denominator thing, that's what's driving the, the bigger number. Now, let's talk about electronic supply chains, because this is a point that you make all the time. And, and in fact, you spent most of your career working in electronic supply chains. What's the significance of that? Yeah, I mean, this is my my job, uh, you know, uh, from Celestica was to find the next thing where um, commoditized electronics were going to disrupt industries. And it's uh, 
basically, as soon as you introduce electronics, be it a plane or a car or whatever, all of a sudden, the, the competitive advantage associated with building that thing starts to accrue to the people who actually have more electronics expertise. And usually how that manifests itself is that people are able to do, to work that performance curve. They say, okay, I've got better drive control systems or what have you, and they're cheaper and they do better. Great. Then they're standardized electronics. So I can build them at the high scale to get those sort of curves that you talked about. They're not some customized bespoke thing. Then you can move them to global supply chains, both from the componentry, but as well as the manufacturing. And then once you've done that, you're opening yourself up to innovation, not just from what you can invent, but now you've outsourced the innovation because you have this entire supply chain working on improving the componentry that goes into it and the manufacturing of it that goes into it. So it just transforms itself to where you thought you were building, you know, a washing machine or a car or a plane. And, you know, the cars still have four wheels, but they're all the innovations driven by electronics. Washing machine still washes clothes, but all the features are driven by the electronics. And that innovation is happening because the componentry is being worked on by a, a fleet of people in the world and being manufactured with a fleet of people in the world, all bringing cost and innovation to your product that, you know, was originally a washing machine or a car or, or a plane. Right. It, it seems like, you know, I've, I've heard it described as, uh, you know, the vehicle now, the the body of the vehicle and the, the tires and the steering mechanism, you know, all of that is, is basically a commodity. Yeah. Everybody can do it. They've, they've been doing it for decades. But it's all of the electronics around the battery, the power electronic systems, the even the simple things like wiring. Yeah. You know, getting the wire, the, the, the wire. I, I read today that uh, Tesla is uh, for its uh, electronics that run the car. It's moving from 12 volts to 48 volts, for example, which is much more efficient and smaller yeah. wires and then that yeah. lighter weight. And those kinds of innovations, uh, they're just they're little things that you don't see, but they make such a, a big difference in the performance and the cost of the uh, energy technology we're talking about. Yeah. I mean, you're seeing this. You're seeing this now, even in a tragic way, in in things like um, the conflict in in the Ukraine, and where a lot of the innovation is these drones and things like that, right? And so, what's it like? A drone is replacing a plane in things. How is that happening? Well, it still has to deal with aerodynamics and all that sort of stuff, which it's very complex. Let's not not underplay building a car. These things are complex. The point is, it's not about the complexity or the difficulty. And we get into these arguments about is the oil sands a bit? Yeah, of course it is. I'm an engineer. I'm a mechanical engineer. This stuff is not easy to do that mechanical stuff. The point that's different is the innovation that's a step function innovation does not come from just being a better mechanical engineer anymore. It's like these UAVs exist because they have computing power on board. They have video on board. There's a GPS system. They communicate wirelessly. All of those things are consumer electronics where all of the innovation has come from this extended supply chain put together in a clever way and boom, you've got something different. So yes, it's a plane. Yes, it flies because it's, it conforms to aerodynamic principles, but it is completely different. And, and the difference is the electronic supply chain and the electronics incorporated into it. So Mike, looking ahead over the next five or 10 years, as we move to this energy as a technology model, what do you expect in terms of, uh, you know, how fast 
the new technology, well, basically electricity generated by various right. forms of technology, and then the, the the demand devices that use them, like electric vehicles and and so on. How how much is that going to accelerate in your from your point of view? Yeah, I think you're bringing up another point too. Is that there's just an inherent elect efficiency and electronic system we so we talked about the electronics and the pace and the innovation and all that but of course as you also say you're losing the conversion losses that you have associated about you know combusting things and turning them into mechanical energy which is very inefficient relative to kind of electrical systems so the first thing that's going to happen is uh the projection that we need so much power is you don't need as much power because people talk primary energy as opposed to moving energy so it's going to move faster than people think because you don't need to replace your entire energy system because you're going to have a more efficient things. The second thing is I think the the exponential curve of, of performance improvement is just we're just at the early stages. So that's going to rapidly uh, go. I think the restraining factors, though, are uh, regulatory, uh, consumer, all of the sort of things that hold back change in general. I think that's going to be the rate limiting step. If you were to ask me from a technology standpoint, are we ready to transition? I'd say yes. I'd say the technologies are here today and are cheaper, solar, battery, EVs, heat pumps, et cetera. We could do it today and we could scale them today because it's not like, wow, we have to create new technologies and new innovations, new factories. These are just add dollars, build another factory, scale it, get the cost effects, you say, and rinse and repeat. We could do that today if we wanted. So the rate limiting step is not the technologies, the ability to manufacture the materials or anything like that with all the noise you hear. It's going to be regulatory, consumer, just acceptance to, to change. And it's going to be fought by the incumbents every single step of the way. The utilities and the oil, oil and gas industry are going to fight this rearguard action to slow it down. I think that's that's the rate limiting step. Let's wrap up this conversation with this question. Uh, I would have to say I, I agree with you. Uh, and one of the things that North Americans are just beginning to understand, but I think you, you know, given the years, your uh, years in the industry, you understand better than most of us. And that is the head start that China has got on the rest of us in these yep. areas. And so as we make this 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 transition, over to electricity as as the as the energy source and all of the new uh, technologies we need to take advantage of that. Uh, China's been doing this for fifteen or twenty years, yeah. And and not only not only do they have the industry, not only do they have the supply chains, but they also have a culture that's very different to us. I mean, I, I interviewed an, uh, somebody from uh, from China about their approach to electric vehicles, and they they like their electric vehicle to be like a uh, you know, a rolling iPhone. Yeah, and where they're everything's interconnected, and they're basically their life uh, is lived on the phone, and and they see their their vehicle as an extension of that. We're North America, Europe, we're miles away from anything like that. Assuming we wanted it, uh, and so if the soft side of this is 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 giving us competitive disadvantage, how do we address that? Yeah, I mean, I I was part of the group uh, in the late '90s that that transferred electronics factories from uh, North America to China, and that was for cost reasons and all that. But there were all those technology sharing agreements. So for a long way back, the Chinese had um, 
looked at Taiwan and looked at Hong Kong and places like that and said, ah, this is an area that we can get into because the robotics to assemble the circuit boards and all that were relative, you could buy them. And so they could put them in factories where most of the intellectual property was, and then just bring tons of low cost labor into the factories. And so this was from a long way back, they'd identified that this was a technology that they could get on board with. And then as I think they started thinking about, okay, what other industries could we get into? They tried to get into automotive, but what they were running into is the, the headroom about making transmissions and making engines and all that stuff, the mechanical energy, you know, that's hard. And so they, mm, we don't have a competitive advantage there. So I think as it started to uh, form that maybe electronic vehicles were a way of the future, they started to combine that electronics capability, which by the way, included huge amounts of battery capability because the lithium ion batteries were in your laptops, your phones and all that, that they were building. And they said, this is a convergence of two things we're really good at. And it eliminates the moat of mechanical precision manufacturing that we are not good at. And so this is an area we can dominate. Oh, by the way, people are still buying cars so we can drive that with our own market so we could get market demand as well as uh, supply capability. And then we're going to do what Japan did you know, with, with the Honda Civic and the like. We're going to build it for our own purposes and then we're going to become an exporting powerhouse. And then they did the same thing with solar as they said, huh, you know, we don't have a lot of oil and gas. We don't have sufficient, but the energy of the future is going to be more like electrical, solar. And once again, the solar supply chain is something that they are good at, high volume electronics sort of manufacturing with the raw materials that they can get. And so you look at all of the areas of this, they said, huh, moving from something that I have a weakness at to now something I have a strength at, creating a moat against my competitors that I can uh, use both my supply side manufacturing expertise, but my demand side to pull this forward. Very long, long view of that. Now, is it insurmountable? No, it is not, because all of those technologies were given to them um, by, by the West. Uh, but I tell you, it'll be a tough putt for us because we have lost in that from the 2000s till now, we probably lost in Canada 90% of our electronics manufacturing and 90% of our solar manufacturing. And there aren't a lot of people, unfortunately, with me who are old and had this experience that actually knew how to do that stuff. So we are going to have to uh, recommit to actually building some stuff uh, here, getting the next generation of people to do that. And recognizing that this is the energy of the future, that we can't rely upon, you know, oil and gas and the things that we've been good at, automotive manufacturing, mechanical things. Uh, we know how to do it. We don't know how to do it at scale. And there isn't a generation of this expertise anymore. That's going to be the challenge for us. So I'd say it's insurmountable to catch up to them probably in total scale. But it's not insurmountable for us to have a meaningful uh, manufacturing capacity in here to make sure that we are completely not completely dependent upon them. That's the bigger danger to me is that our new energy system and automotive system is completely dependent upon China. I think that would be a really bad thing. Well, Mike, thank you very much for your insights. Really appreciate it. Yeah, appreciate the time as always.